On fossil downs and cane grass station in a million homes across the nation, they're tuning in Australia. Hey, Macco, it's Shane McGrath from Bow Hill. It's a little town just outside of Manham near Murray Bridge. So we've still got a, about a metre of water before it gets down to pool level, like normal level. Getting rid of sandbags and getting mud out of houses. But the problem is that the roads are still wet, so people can't drive in there yet. To get, so all the rubbish is going to the side of the roads. But the yabby season was magnificent, Macca. <laughs> Yabbies are going nuts up here. We're getting like 300 a night. 300? Uh, me and my next door neighbour, we'll pick one of them every day and <laughs> have a good feed. People are coming up from Adelaide to do the yabbying inside the river and bringing kids up and, yeah, it's magnificent. And is that because of the floods, because the water spreads out over the land and things like that and they breed up? They're usually in the ground anyway, but when the water goes out to the floodplains, they just come out and they, we were putting nets out on people's lawns because they were feeding up on the fresh grass. It's a local lobster, isn't it, Shane? <laughs> It's beautiful. You uh, can pickle it in so many different flavours, but I'm, I'm at the point now that I'm all yabbied out. <laughs> Put your yabby nets out on your front lawn, eh? That's the story at Manham. <laughs> and there's a lot of stories like that, but they reckon the recovery's going to be for about oh, probably another two years, Mako. Good on you, Shane. Have a fantastic day, and thank Thanks, you to all the listeners. You do a magnificent job. Ooh, it's cold this morning for Nancy's chooks. They're walking dogs, they're writing books as Trevor stacks his bottles by the roadside. On you, Trev. In Turak, T.I., Tumbarumba, at the lodge and Yarralumla. They might be listening to Macca on a Sunday morning. My week starts with Macca on a Sunday morning. Mine too, isn't it amazing? Good morning and welcome, wherever you are. I t- we had a great call this morning from Michael in Kuopio. He's in Finland, for God's sake. And he's he started skating when he was 65, I think. He saw it in the Olympics in 84. He saw the... And he thought, gee, that, doesn't that look whoosh, whoosh, whoosh skiing? So he he lives in Geelong, Melbourne way. And so he decided to go to this race in Finland which is sort of like a long-distance race on, a, on the lakes because the lake of, lakes over there freeze over. He said, although they have wrinkles in them, <laughs> and you come a gutso if you're skating. But, um, um, and he just went over to Finland for this. It's the, called the Finland uh, Marathon Ski Race or something like that. Um, and uh, he went in and he didn't come last. He usually comes last, but... It was a mighty story, mighty story. And he took his little grandson with him and he went skating too and just a thing to do. He just decided to do it. He's a psychologist and we talked about psychology and all sorts of things. But how are you? 1300 to 700 triple two, that's our number this morning. Give us a ring. We've got lots of lots of calls waiting. Lots of people uh, have uh, rung us. In a minute we'll talk about, I'll take you to Whittenham. Well, Virtually, but that's how we do everything these days, isn't it? We do virtually. And I don't think you can go to Whitney, but we'll uh, tell you that story because I've got a friend of mine I've worked with for a long time, long time. does seem a day too long. Mike Broadhurst, who used to, you probably remember, he used to do the weather. He's one of the best weathermen you'd ever see. And persons, sorry. Um, he was very good. But um, that was then. He's, not, he's only a shadow of his former self now. But we'll talk to him. In a little while, and we'll talk to you. Our number's 1300-700-222. We just had a lovely, um, a lovely little piece with Joyce. 
because last week uh, there was a reunion of um, the Ballarat Orphanage and Children's Home. And when I looked up, looked it up on the net and stuff to see how many <coughs> homes there were, there were there were heaps and heaps and heaps and heaps. And I suppose, and the interesting thing was that she said uh, that started in 1865, and of course that was the gold rush time. And lots of people, men, came from all over the world to the gold rush, and they established liaisons and children, and then they all shot through. And um, often there were kids around that had no. Um, visible means of support, so they had to find institutions to house the kids. That's just one reason behind it. But um, Joyce was lovely. Joyce was there in the 60s. No, sorry, Joyce was there in the 40s to the 50s. And they had a reunion of sorts the other day, and they also had the opening of a, a bit of a museum. But she said this lovely thing. She said, we had everything, she said, except love. We didn't have love, but she said we didn't miss it. Isn't that an amazing thing to say? It's a lovely thing to say in lots of ways, isn't it? Because I suppose, what, what did the Queen say about love? The only reason that you know, when you have love, you have sadness too. So that's the whole, that's the human, la condition humane, isn't it? But look, we'll talk to you. I'll shut up. 1300 700 is our number. G'day, this is Macca. Hello. G'day, Macca. Um, yep. Oh. You got me? Yeah, I have. Gotcha. Uh, how's it going? My name's Doug, and I'm uh, just driving to the uh, Brisbane airport. I'm on my way back to, to Darwin to go back to work. What do you do, Dougie? Uh, I'm a ringer. You're a little possum. Whereabouts? Uh, I'm a, well, I'm a contract muster, so we're based um, about 150k southeast of Catherine, and then, um, yeah, we sort of go everywhere from the floodplains up near Darwin to the WA border near Halls Creek and then, um, yeah, everywhere in between. Everywhere in between. You get around, Doug. So you live in Brisbane, do you? Uh, I live in Taunton on the Sunshine Coast. Uh-huh. That's a good place for a ringer to live. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that sounds great. I was just interested. I had a call earlier this morning from a bloke called Ron, who's sort of a friend of mine. Um, I know him. But... Um, and he's got a he's got a or he had a farm. He sold it because I think he sold it. The, the the defining moment when he sold it was he was in the yard with the with the cattle and the bull picked him up and threw <laughs> tossed him, tossed him in the air. And he's he's not a young bloke. He's 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 eighty, I think. And and the do, and the bull tossed him in the air. And he said, "I landed on cement." And he said, "I didn't I didn't break anything." So, yeah. but he said, "My time has come." So he sold the farm. So I I suspect. Well, I don't know, but you've had some uh, um, close calls, have you, Doug? Yeah, yeah, I had a few. Uh, at the end of the year, actually, I'd, I'd done pretty well. well. I worked up there last year as well, and um, at the end of the year, we were working up in the floodplain, and um, it all gets pretty slippery and muddy up there when it starts raining. And, um, yeah, we were loading boat cattle, and I got run over quite a few times by some big mickeys, but, um, but no, they, they don't do too much damage. <laughs> Well, it depends, I suppose. It's uh, well, I suppose people like you realise how dangerous it is. when you're around cattle. It's a dangerous, it's a dangerous place to be, isn't it? Um, and you, ne- yeah. you never know, and you've just got to keep your eyes and ears open all the time because they don't know what's going on and they kick out. And I remember once I was in a yard and and a, uh, a bull kicked and it went his his leg went straight past my face. And I thought, what, what was that? And I went past a hundred. It would have knocked my head off if it had hit it, hit me. But um, and that's our, 
yeah, you get it's like getting in the ring with a boxer, isn't it? Um, it's uh, you've got to be careful. Yeah, you've got to be really careful. Yeah, but uh, I think I'm only 19, so I probably bounce back a bit better than an 80 year old. <laughs> well, he was amazed. He said he, he and he landed on cement, and uh, he was he was okay. So, so you've been doing. Why did you decide to become a ringer? Uh, was it in the family, Doug, or what? Oh, not really. Both both my parents are teachers, but um, they yeah they taught up in Normanton for a few years before I was born, and then um, yeah I just finished school in 2021, and then um, I thought I'd do something a bit different before I uh, head off to uni or figure out what I'll do with myself. Mm. So, and you've been doing it for what for a year or two? Ah, uh, yeah, this will be my second year mm. uh, this year. And what do you do? You like it? It's exciting, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I love it. It's something a bit different. I've uh, uh, I've just been doing a bit of labouring work at home, and I tell you, it's one of the most boring things I've ever done compared to to being up north. So um, yeah, I'm pretty keen to get back up there. When you do contract mustering, do you do it with on jeeps with those things where you used to like they used to catch buffalo with those things where they put a lasso around them on the on the jeep and things like that, or is it on a horseback or what or on bikes or? Yeah, so we uh, when we're doing just our mustering, we we do it on horses and bikes, and then um, when we go bull catching, yeah, we've got three catches and um, and yeah, we we've got arms on the catches and everything, so um, it, yeah, it's pretty exciting when you go catching. I suppose. Well, yeah. Take care, Dougie. Um, so, where where are you heading to today? You're going southwest of Catherine. Yeah, yeah. So I'm flying to Darwin and then um, yeah, drive down to just past Catherine there, and then yeah, hopefully the rain will hold off for a little bit, and uh, yeah, hopefully I'll get there all right. It's a, yeah. Well, it's been a wet season up there. I don't know if it's gone down as far as Catherine, has it? Yeah. Well, uh, my bosses have a have a station just in Catherine and then a lease um, just on the near Roper Bar. And, um, yeah, they've had plenty of rain. They've had a, a really good wet. So, um, yeah, it should be a good year. It'll be hard for you to go to uni, mate. What are you going to do? Uh, I, I got into law when I finished year 12, but I'm not too sure if I want to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, maybe you can do law and then buy yourself a place or something like that. But... Um... Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah. I'm not one to tell you not to do anything. Yeah, just it's always interesting. You can see how it goes and see if you like it. And yeah, yeah, um, for sure. Or, or find out where being a ringer can lead you, or whatever, if you like it. Um, it's always a great experience to have when you're a lawyer, mate. When you get around talking to people and you're getting all over. It's uh, yeah, if you're in the uh, in the courtroom and talking and stuff like that, uh, the more experience you've had with talking to other people, not to cattle, but talking to, talk to people, <laughs> it'll yeah. stand, stand you in good stead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll figure it out. <laughs> years ago, um, years ago, um, when I first started the ABC, um, I worked in a little unit. It was a regional radio unit, really, and um, I bumped into... My next guest, his name is Mike Broadhurst. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Nice good to see you. Good How are you? I'm good, thank you. No, you're well. Uh, yeah, reasonably. How about yourself? Yeah, I was just trudging along. Mike, uh, ladies and gentlemen, used to uh, compare a lot of the programs we did 
uh, morning extra and um, I got you your job. Yeah, exactly. Got me my job, <laughs> and and he also used to compare this program when I was on the other side of the glass, and we used to have fun. It was, but in those the when we first did the program, it wasn't. Um, it was pre-recorded every Thursday. Well, I did it four years, yeah. and two of those years were pre-recorded. Yeah, but before that, it was live. But it it went back to the sixties. Yeah, I know. When it was always on Sunday, and it was only about when it first started. Yeah. I think it was only twenty minutes long or something. Wasn't oh, it? I can't remember how yeah. long it was. No. I wasn't in the ABC then. I joined the ABC in nineteen seventy-one. And um, why I called Mike the Calderdale uh, Jackaroo after that song, really. Um, because when I worked with Mike, you know, you talk about things, and he told me that um, he'd worked, uh, had gr- grown up at Whitnoom. And I last week on the pro was it last week, week before, I talked to a lady called Susie D. And at a place called the Red Stitch Theatre, which is in Melbourne, they had a play on called Whitnoom. And so we talked about that and with, with Susie and... When I saw this, I thought, oh, Whitnam, that's Mike. Because I remember Mike used to talk now and again, Whitnam. And, and I think everybody in Australia knows about Whitnam because it's, uh, it's uh, been part of the... Well, I think, I think it's faded from memory a lot because I, I say to people, oh, I was brought up at Whitnam, and they say, where? Yeah. I say, Hammersley Rangers, northwest Western Australia. Mm. Oh, Yeah. And um, mesothelioma and uh, things like that. Asbestosis. Asbestosis. And clouds of floating across the... Oh, yes. Yeah. That's when they crushed because uh, a lot of people don't know that uh, blue asbestos, its name is crocidolite, actually. Mm. It's a technical name. But it comes in a seam like coal. It can be a couple of inches or a couple of centimetres tall or, you know, three or four, five, six, seven, eight, ten centimetres tall. Mm. And the fibres in it are minute in diameter. You can get, if you got one as thick as your finger, uh, a section of it, there'd be thousands and thousands of fibres in it. But it's got to be crushed out of the rock. And what happens then is the dust forms. And I can remember at Whitnam living there that if we had an overcast evening and they were crushing, because they sometimes crush through the night, the dust would be extraordinary. It'd be like a pea soup fog. Uh-huh. And you think that if you poked your finger into it, the hole would stay there. <laughs> <laughs> but you'd wake up in the morning and the uh, fly wires would be literally dripping with asbestos. There you go. I'm talking to Mike and, as I said, <clears throat> tell us a story. You grew up. How, how come you were you know, a, okay. little, a little boy ends up at Whitnam? Tell me. I was born in Sydney, actually. Mm. And um, uh, Dad, my father, was uh, he's a was a farm boy from Childers in Queensland and he became an engineer and joined CSI. He was with CSR all his life. And in 1943, uh, CSR took over the uh, the mining at Whitnam from Lang Hancock. Lang Hancock started it there and they took over in 1943, the year I was born. So Dad was over there and I'm not sure when I got there but it was about when I was two or three because the, my earliest memory of Whitnam is my mother changing my nappy, so I must have been quite... <laughs> <laughs> wow. And the other, the other memory I had was my mother feeding me spooning apple out of the fruit in an aeroplane. And I had glandular fever and was going to uh, Port Hedland because that was the only major hospital there. And uh, I can remember... The other memory of that is my bed was on the veranda and I was looking out to sea. Mm, and wow. what came, comes to mind is Dorothea McKellar's poem, 
I love a sunburnt country, a land of sweeping plains, of ragged mountain ranges, of droughts and flooding rains, and that sort of thing. And if I'd known that uh, later on as I was growing, I would have said, she's been here. That Whitnoom, <laughs> because it was, but uh, it was, uh, nobody was dying in Whitnoom yeah. from that, from asbestosis. But dad was, he was the manager. CSR uh, said, we want you to run the business at Whitnoom. He yeah. became the general manager of ABA, Australian Blue Asbestos, which is a part of CSR. And we lived in the gorge about a mile from the mine, all the management did. And Whitnoom, the town, was on the edge of the Hammersley Ranges, and it became... Uh, at one time, one of the biggest towns in the northwest of Western Australia. I bet. And there were uh, the maximum maximum population was about a thousand. But that, yeah, you know, it was so the, the conditions were so stressful because it got so hot. Hundred and twenty in the shade in the oil system. Plus all the dust. Well, dust the Whitnoom dust, but uh, the dust from the yeah. plains, yeah. the endless Everything. plains. Yeah. Uh, but it was the end of the war when we had an influx of uh, workers from Europe after the war. Uh And uh, they were offered a house, a job, and all the amenities. Mm. So the parents were complaining when the school started that the kids were coming home speaking five different languages. They couldn't (laughs) understand what they were saying. It was quite remarkable. I feel like the Snowy Mountains. The same thing happened there. But it was a paradise. Yes. Well, that's what I wanted to talk about, because this play, Whitnoom, was about, I suppose, about it follows the the story. This uh, it follows the story of Dot and her daughter Pearl. But when I when I've heard about Whittenham, I've heard about this gorge and one of the most beautiful places in Australia, from what I can see. Staggeringly beautiful. It was a small gorge, and if you if you go on, say Google Earth, there's a picture of it, mm. and I've got a picture here where it shows the, uh, the cement slabs of the houses that were built are still there. Mm. And I can see that there's water all around it. So the creeks have come down. And when we got home, we went to boarding school in Perth. And when we got home for holidays, the first thing we asked mum and dad was, have the creeks come down? (laughs) Because that was heaven on earth. Really? And I can see that there's water here. And I can point out all the spots that we used to play and light fires and smoke cigarettes and (laughs) (laughs) when we were 10 and 12 and sort of thing. Yes, a, a a beautiful place. Oh, uh, absolutely but, staggeringly beautiful. Yes, um, I've never and nobody. Uh, I think. Look, I can't remember, but I think we had a call from a bloke or somebody once ten, fifteen years ago that was was living up there and yes. said, I'm, "I'm still living here and I'm not going to move" or something like that. I, I can remember that. I think. Well, I've only just in twenty two, just got rid of the last person at Whitnoom, mm. and he was there as a weather station for the bureau. And uh, they did. A, there was a documentary on Seven Thirty Report about this particular guy. Mm. And uh, yeah, they got see the the town wasn't that great mm. because it was on a plain. Mm. Uh, there was nothing there. There was not much scenery. But when you went into the gorge, which was seven miles, oh, eleven kilometres into the gorge, Another you word. crossed the creek seven yeah. times as you went in there. And you the the red iron rock against the green yellow of the of the spinifex and the as it said in the poem, the pitiless blue sky yeah. was just amazing, just amazing. A willful, lavish land. That's yes. a, it's a it's a great poem. It's oh, the, yeah. it's the great Australian poem that's right. because it just describes everything yeah. so well. The first time so I read well. it, that's what I said. I said, "Oh, she's been here." <laughs> <laughs> she, she may well have, but in 
these days now you can go to Wintenham in uh, you can see it on, on as you say, go to Google, whatever. And um, you but can, you can't go there. No. See the the you can probably go to Wintenham uh, Township there because it's not closed off, but the entrance to the gorge is closed off and you can't get up the gorge. Mm. Uh, so you can't is see Is that the where beauty. the mining was, up the gorge, yeah. was it? The, the first mine was started in, in Whitnoom Gorge. Uh, it was started, well, actually, the existence of blue asbestos was known since 1915. And uh, about 1925, asbestos, an asbestos rush occurred in the Pilbara, which is our area there. Mm. But the tyranny of distance and the terrain difficulties forced prospectors to sell their claims to speculators. Lang Hancock then uh, started the first actual mining of blue asbestos, and CSR took over from that. There they took go. over, and they, they finished mining in 1966. It never made a profit. Mm. It, uh, it just didn't. Uh, it was too harsh. Michael's in Kuopio. Is that right, Michael? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Well, tell everyone where Kuopio is. Um, it's it's in the middle of Finland. And what are you doing there, Mike? Well, um, there's a race around their lake at a couple of different distances. Um, I uh, wimped out a bit and only did 25 kilometres, um, and I came here to do that uh, race, skating, that is. Skating? You're a skater. You came from where? I came from uh, Geelong, really, sort of Melbourneish. <laughs> well, Melbourneish, exactly. Um, and you went all that way for a for a skating race. Yes, nothing else. Just came over here to go in the race, and I'll be going home tomorrow. Tell me why you did that. You're a you're a skater. You're an Olympic skater, or something, or. <laughs> no, no, I'm an old tryhard. I was about 65 or so when I said I've always wished I could have been a speed skater, and. Um, so I went and joined a speed skating club, but I didn't want to fly around like a bee in a bottle and, you know, the last man standing sort of race where they're all elbowing and jostling. I actually always wanted to do, you know, the beautiful long whoosh, whoosh, whoosh sort of action of mm-hmm. swooping at least around the big tracks. And um, so I've, since then I've been slowly getting slightly better every year. Uh, which uh, most people at my age, of course, can't say I'm getting better every year. And um, uh, every time I come over, I totally get hammered usually and get lapped, you know, and come stone motherless last. But today I beat about 38% of them home. Well, that's good. Now tell me, so this they've got they've got big skating um, tracks and uh, places, have they, where you can skate for long distances? In Europe, they've got... Uh, a few, not past number, but a 400-metre tracks like, um, uh, you know, an athletics track, mm. and that's what they call long track speed skating. Um, but uh, in Finland here, they're um, they're tougher than that, and they mostly do it on the lakes because the lakes are extremely uh, frozen. Um, but, of course, the surfaces are a bit wrinkly. And um, so here it is, and I thought I really wanted to do a serious one. It's the first time I've come to Finland to do this, and it was uh, awesome fun. I think you're a legend. So if they're a bit wrinkly, do you go uh, base over apex um, when you hit a bit of wrinkles? Oh, yes. Um, Yes, yes, yes. I uh, sort of was close to withdrawing just from practice. I sort of nearly dislocated my shoulder. got to cut my ankle through to the bone with one of my other skates. Oh, um, dear. When my feet got tangled and... um, whatever, 
And so I went out and got longer skates. Uh, they've, they've got sort of skates, um, you know, about two foot long. Really? In the old money. And uh, and these can ride over the wrinkles a hell of a lot better. And so, um, yeah, bigger so, toys for bigger boys, I yeah. suppose. I've talked to Michael in uh, Kuopio um, in Finland. Kuopio, yeah. So what is it again? Kuopio. Kuopio. Now, Michael, when did you yeah. first start? When did you start skating? Um, oh, about about ten years ago. Is 12, that all? Twelve. I think I was just over sixty-five. Yeah. Why? Why? Yeah, why? Seventy-seven. What, now. Why? You had you always wanted to do it, but or no, it just came to you in a in the bath or something. No, um, I saw it in nineteen eighty on television in the Winter Olympics. I said that's the most awesome thing I've ever seen. I wished I could do it, and. Um, I kept wishing it, and when they actually opened a big rink in Docklands, I was working just near there at the time, and so at least I, I sort of potted down and stumbled around on skates, and then I joined the speed skating club, and the rest's history. And um, so, <laughs> I think uh, you're and a... every year I'm getting better. I think you're a legend, mate. I think what do you do for a living? Um, I'm a psychologist. Oh wow! Need to examine my own head, you reckon? <laughs> Well, you know, I didn't know. I didn't say that, Michael. But yeah, um, no, I think that's uh, so. You're sort of retired now, and you've got time, time on my hands. You got time on your hands, and you can do what you. Hell no, no, um, no. There's been you know the odd wrinkle in my life, um, uh, and uh, I totally keep working. I work five days a week, and um, I, I sort of keep wishing. I think I spoke to the government, or perhaps I thought about it, saying, uh, "Look, older folk need." Um, you know, their their needs catered for and perhaps they could cover trips to Europe to go speed skating in a pension and then maybe I'd retire. <laughs> but they didn't take me up on it. No, no. And how's the uh, how's the mental how, how's the mental health of the nation or Melbourne way anyway? Oh um there's there's plenty of uh, customers and um so, uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, quite seriously, since the pandemic, uh, and, you know, it isn't obviously, uh, you know, people coming and complaining, oh, crikey, you know, mm. I was locked up for two years, but seriously, um, I reckon the demand for services, and like we we're pretty busy up till that stage, mm. but uh, the demand for services has seems to have just about doubled Um uh, and I don't know what uh, sort of uh, precisely what part of the pandemic flushed this out. It just seems like the same sort of regular people, but there's a lot more people banging on our door these days. And I, I suspect uh, there's, like in every profession, there's a shortage of staff and some people don't want to do it anymore. And yeah. and so wherever you look, there's a shortage of staff, Michael. But um, but anyway, yeah, so well, how long have you... Sort of, to quote your song, oh, well, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> When? How long have you been in Finland? Just for a week or so? Yes, just just to be a week. Yes, I came last Saturday. Well, I think it's mighty that you've done that. You've done that, and you've beat thirty eight, beaten thirty eight percent of the uh, other skaters. So, where are they all? Yeah, Finlandians? I was the oldest by a long, long, long way. Um, I'm mostly Finlandians. Um, yeah. There's a small scattering. Actually, there's a bunch of Brits, like a bunch being about uh, four or five who were coming over, I could not believe it. They're on ice hockey skates, which is so much more work to keep going uh, in a long distance. 
and they were entering the 50-kilometre race uh, as some sort of charity fundraising thing. I uh-huh. asked one of them at one stage, he said, how are you going, mate? And he said, oh, like, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. I could not imagine it was like this. Wow. Yeah. But, um, yeah, most of them are Finns. Um, so, and what's this race? Uh, is yeah, this, I, I was thinking, is, is this race got a name? Coopio. Yeah, the Finnish Ice Marathon, it's called, and uh, I was the oldest person in it, as far as I understand. I was just going to ask that. Talk. I was just going to ask that. Yeah. That should be on the news. The oldest the oldest person in the Finnish Ice Marathon has uh, just come, not 38th, but yes. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's a river, Mike. I think it's a great, great little yarn. Well, bump well I thought I'd look at myself and say, uh, is the choice sort of uh, sitting on the veranda waiting for death to come or still going out and having fun? And um, uh, so I, I sort of took the second. What's the temperature over there? Um, it's minus 13 at the moment and it's, it's going to reach minus nine today. Well, that's uh, centigrade. Yes, of course. Yes, of course. So, so suck it up, all you people suffering from your heat wave. Um, we actually got down to minus thirty the other day, and uh, wow. me and my little ten-year-old grandson Jimmy, um, or nine years old, uh, he he came with me. He tells everyone he's my carer, and uh, we were out skating at, mi- at minus thirty. Uh, so he's a skater too. Well, no, he wasn't, but he strapped on a pair of skates, uh, sort of more or less got round and did a kilometre race yesterday. It was just sort of a, a mini marathon, and uh, if you get round the sort of uh, laps of a little kid's course, you get a medal, and um, he go. bravely went out there, put up with falls and uh, whatever the hell, and uh, had a go. Michael, great to talk to you, mate. I'll see you in uh, Geelong. We'll hopefully be going down to Geelong uh, later, uh, maybe next month with a bit of luck. So if you're home by then and you hear us, uh, come in and... Oh, I trust I'll be home tomorrow. (laughs) Or actually Tuesday because of all the time jumps. Yeah, all right. Well, good on you, Michael. Great to talk to you. From the finish... Okay, see ya. Skating Marathon. Thanks, mate. Bye. (whistles) Ryan's in Canberra. Morning, Ryan. Hey, mate. How you going? Good, thank you. I uh, just thought I'd ring you up, Macca. I was uh, lucky enough to get a lease through the ACT government. They put together a young farmers grant. Um, I'm literally oh, 500 metres from the Canberra airport, so on a paddock at the moment. So thought so, I'd ring you up and let you know what I was, what's going on. So tell me this: you you've leased a paddock from the from the ACT government? Yeah. So they. Um, there's a few paddocks here that are full of weeds and love grass, and they're trying to do them all up for horse adjustment in sort of the next three to five years. Uh huh. And and that's what you're doing. Yeah. So they gave me those, and they actually they fund they fund all the seed and super to sow crops here, and we've just got to supply the the labour to do it. So my partner and I are having a crack, and yeah. Good on you. What's what's your background, Ryan? Have you done this before? I suppose have you? Yeah, sort of off family farms and um, I've, with prices of real estate at the moment, would love to go and buy a place, but sort of Emma and I are uh, yeah, just trying to build our numbers up here and we're actually a family building business in Queanbeyan and try and fit in this, fit this in when I've got spare time. So. Aren't you amazing? Now tell me this, how big's the, the, the paddocks and what are you growing? Uh, it's about 300 acres here at the moment and just putting oats in oats in for probably two to three years and then they want to sell it down to pasture for the horse adjustment. So. Well, there you go. Well, you might you might make a bit of money out of that with a bit of luck. Yeah, no, it's 
very good opportunity. Like, obviously, um, very grateful for it. And, yeah, it's just good to be able to have your own bit of land to, to trial and error. And, as I said, hopefully one day buy our own place and we'll have a few numbers around us to, to um, put on our own joint. Yes, exactly. Now, um, Ryan, you work there, what, on weekends, do you? And, and uh, do your building the rest of the week? Yeah, sort of building during the week. Um, I'm a plumber by trade, so we do our own plumbing. And then, but yeah, any spare chance, I'm literally looking straight over Queanbeyan right now. Like we're right in town, so it works really well to be able to call in and move a few cattle around or do what I have to do during the week. And then, yeah, on weekends, we do whatever needs to be done. Wet year for you this year? Um, it has been. The last sort of three years has been pretty good here, but at the moment, I don't know, old farmer's never happy, but at the moment, we could do with a bit of rain. Um, a few crops and that to go in. So, I was reading, but this was this was last year or maybe the year before about Detroit uh, in in America, where they made all the cars and and that all it's all fallen in a heap, or a lot of it has fallen in a heap. So, and a lot of the places gone into disrepair, and they were they said they're returning some of that land that was around Detroit to to farming land. You know, yeah, right. And I and I suppose there's there's lots of there's lots of places where you can do what you're doing, Ryan, I'd reckon, around the place. Yeah, and definitely here in Canberra, there's a lot of land that sort of gets unused just because it's surrounded by suburbia. And, um, but, yeah, as I said, we're literally a stone's throw from the Canberra airport, so it's pretty bizarre. I was driving around last night with the lights on and looking over Canberra and watching the planes come in. So, <laughs> uh, Well, good luck to you, Ryan. I'll... Uh-huh. I'll, uh, I'll uh... If I get down Canberra Way soon, I'll I'll see if you're on the weekend. You're mostly there on the weekends, right? Yeah, that's right. All right. Good luck, mate. Nice to talk to you. No worries. Good on you, mate. See, see you, mate. Bye. This is the All Over News. I've always been interested in stories about homeless children, orphans, because I suppose for some it's hard to imagine life without two caring parents. And yet, for many, all over the world, that's indeed been the norm. I noticed the other day that the Ballarat Orphanage and Children's Home had a reunion of former residents last Friday in Ballarat. The orphanage opened in 1865, that was gold rush time in Victoria, and closed in 1965. And to mark its part in Ballarat life for a hundred years, a museum was officially opened last Thursday. I was also reminded of a little ditty one of our listeners sang to me one morning, himself a former child of an orphanage, years ago. He sang us a song that the kids would sing about their lot in life. There is a happy land far, far away Where we get bread and jam one slice a day Bacon and eggs we never see, we get sawdust in our tea, butter is a luxury, that is why we're gradually fading away. Lovely little song, a fun song, and yet I suppose the fun of that song hides a, a multitude of sins. And I suspect it reflects the times, and it seems to me there were lots of orphanages, for want of a better term, in Australia. Joyce was a former resident of the Ballarat Orphanage, and she joins me this morning. Now, Joyce, what can you tell me about the museum? Good morning and welcome. Good morning, Ian. The museum is a display of articles, pictures, all sorts of things that were formerly archived in a dark room, hidden away and forgotten. They have now been brought to the forefront and 
they've been displayed in glass cases and in a very nice setting underneath Ludbrook House in Lydiard Street, Ballarat. A nice crowd of about 30 attended the official opening and renaming of the museum on Thursday, last Thursday. It's very well presented and representative of the day and the age when the orphanage and the children's home, which were a collection of cottages, were active. So pretty strange times. We had the gold rushes and, and those sort of things and of course they attracted all kinds of people when the gold ran out or nothing was found. The men who had had ladies, you know, as companions or wives during that time just took off and the mothers and the children were left to do the best they could but in Ballarat in particular we had some very, very good people who put a lot of money together, who got the home up and running, got the children in, got them educated and so it went on from there. They were very difficult times. And what's your recollection of your time at the Ballarat Orphanage? I was there 41 to 53 and I had two sisters who were there with me. I was very lucky I had my sisters. I still have them. We were very regimented. We did as we were told. We had certain hours to do school, work, darning the boys' socks, swimming, sport. We were very regimented, but... That was how we learned to become good citizens. We didn't think too much about parents or anything like that. You know, we went off to church. We, we were sort of like normal children, only lacking the love. But a lot of children didn't get that in private homes anyway, so I don't think we missed that too much. But looking back, we knew no difference. We got on with it. You live in Queensland now? Yes, I'm a very lucky girl, the land of... Shirley Toms and the, the hillbillies that we used to listen to, you know, at four o'clock in the morning on the ABC. I can't believe I'm up in Queensland, the Warwick Radio and things like that that you dream of when you're a child. Because a lot of people living in Ballarat now never knew that an orphanage existed in Victoria Street. Nothing there to show, but after we get, sort, we get it sorted, um, there will be... Uh, Memories there that the public can go and see and the history of the site is recorded. So that should be okay, I think. Joyce, nice to talk to you. Oh, you're more than welcome, Ian. Thanks so much. And as a postscript to our story about orphans, I sometimes think we're all orphans in a sort of a way. I bring you a little bit of Arthur Miller's book, Time Bends a Life, where he talks about his father, his father Izzy, and he was sort of left behind in Europe by his parents when they went to America. Arthur Miller was a playwright and author, death of a salesman, married famously to Marilyn Monroe. But this is his little story about his father, who was left behind. It says, Logically, I suppose, Isidore's lone boy trip across Europe, and Isidore is Arthur Miller's father when he was a little boy, and the ocean should have evoked all kinds of negative feelings in us, like outrage at the parents who had left him behind, or resentment towards the three brothers and three sisters who had been taken along on the big exodus to the new world. But it was just part of the saga, unquestioned like everything else in our fable. The official explanation was that Grandpa couldn't afford to buy Papa's ticket, that's Arthur Miller's father's ticket, and figured on sending the money as soon as he had made some in America, a matter of a few months at the most. Meanwhile, the little left-behind boy was stashed with an uncle, who would soon die. The child was then passed from family to family, allowed to sleep with an aged grandmother and the feeble-minded who soiled their beds and howled half the night and didn't mind who they slept with, 
poor Izzy, after many months of this, must have felt effectively orphaned. Something I have only lately come to surmise, says Arthur Miller, after over 60 years of knowing the story. Indeed, his orphanhood may well have contributed to the special warmth my second wife, Marilyn Munro, never ceased to feel towards him. She was able to walk into a crowded room and spot anyone there who had lost parents as a child or had spent time in orphanages. And I acquired this instinct of hers, says Arthur Miller, but not as unerringly. There is a, do you like me? In an orphan's eyes, an appeal out of bottomless loneliness that no parented person can really know. From Arthur Miller's Time Bends. From our weather correspondent Richard Whittaker, he says over the last month or so we've seen some severe thunderstorm activity, especially along the New South Wales coast. Powerful wind gusts creating havoc. Port Macquarie on the 3rd of February and torrential rain causing floods along the central coast on the 9th. The wind gust event was particularly interesting because it was an example of a microburst, a powerful but highly localised downdraft of sinking air within a thunderstorm that is less than 4 k's across. This column of air drops from the thunderstorm cell and when hitting the ground spreads out in all directions, producing a sudden burst of powerful wind. Microbursts are short-lived and highly localised but intense and can result in wind gusts in excess of 200 k's an hour. Just such an event occurred in the United States 40 years ago with a near catastrophe resulting. On the 1st of August 1983, President Ronald Reagan aboard Air Force One landed at Andrews Air Force Base in Washington. Just six minutes later, a microburst tore across the area producing a wind gust of 240 k's an hour. This was a near miss and went very close to producing a major accident involving the President of the United States. Microbursts have caused several aircraft incidents around the world, including Australia, and as a result, warning systems have been developed based on Doppler radar to alert pilots of the danger. And speaking of the weather and how much rain we've had over the last year or two or three, the La Ninas, Richard says in 2010-11 and 2011-12, they were all La Nina events, 2010 was the third wettest year on record for Australia and 2011 the second wettest. 1974 holds the record for the wettest year Australia has experienced and this was also a La Nina year. In contrast, 1982-83 was a strong El Nino and produced widespread drought across Australia. The devastating 1983 fires followed in February 1983. We were talking about gold last week with Jason, who lives in Orange and works in the gold mining industry, and we were unsure as to the biggest gold producers in the world. Our correspondent from Melbourne, Jimmy from Kew as he calls himself, says, Ian, according to the United States Geological Survey, the world's largest gold producer is China, with 330 tonnes produced in 2022. Actual gold production was probably more like 370 tonnes. China was followed by Australia and Russia with 320 tonnes each. Russian statistics are questionable, says Jimmy, as it's not clear if their figures include scrap and recycled gold. Canada is fourth with 220 tonnes of gold production in 2022, followed by the US at number five with production of 170 tonnes. South Africa, which was the world's largest gold miner for decades and produced about 1,000 tonnes in 1970, in 2022, produced only 110 tonnes. In the production league table, South Africa has fallen to the world's eighth largest producer. 
Apparently, South Africa's gold mines are deep, hot and have high costs. Electricity, which is needed for ventilation, refrigeration and pumping to keep the workings dry, is expensive and in short and irregular supply, says Jimmy from Kew. From Will, our correspondent on Christmas Island, he says, enjoy your show, and last week you had a commemoration of the bombing of Darwin. It was particularly sobering for me because my granddad in the Australian Navy was on Darwin Harbour when it happened. He survived, although his ship didn't fare so well. He went on to partake in the Battle of the Coral Sea. It's also important to remember, says Will, and make mention of the point that Darwin was not the only place to be bombed. Broome also came under attack, as did the Cocos Islands. Christmas Island was also occupied by the Japanese for a period. So I guess what I'm saying is, it's great to remember Darwin, but don't forget the other places who suffered a similar fate. An undertaught chapter of Australian history, says Will Parker on Christmas Island. I think much of our history is undertaught, Will. G'day, this is Macca. Oh, g'day, Macca. It's Craig speaking on the Gold Coast. Hi, Craig. How are you? Yeah, good. <laughs> um, I, um, I'm flying today from the Gold Coast down to the Avalon Air Show. Oh, wow. Well, tell me so, about uh, it. Tell, what, you're yeah, flying sure. on your own or flying somebody? Yeah. Or what's the story? Yeah, so um, I, um, I'm, I restored a, um, a Beechcraft debonair I found in the back of a hangar in Longreach about two and a half years ago. It hadn't flown for 10 years. So I brought it back and restored it, and um, I've been flying it for a couple of years. Um, and I've decided to go down to volunteer um, uh, at the air show. A lot of volunteers are needed to make those kind of events work. Um, and there are seven other um, aircraft from the Southport Flying Club uh, heading down today as well. So a bit of a flotilla. We're all going different ways. We're dropping off and seeing friends along the way. Um, I just heard you call about Coomera. Thinking about possibly dropping into Jindabyne to see some friends. Um, yeah, and then I'll be uh, on station down there for the week helping out, and the plane will be on display, um, fully restored um, while it's down there. So tell me about the plane again, and, and why is it? How old is this plane? It's a 1965 Debonair, um, which is a straight tail. If you remember the V-tail Bonanza, this is a straight tail version of that aeroplane. Um, and, um, yeah, it's um, a great little plane, and um, I've had an engine upgrade, so it's more powerful than the original machine was. Uh-huh. And um, I've just redone the upholstery, redone the paint, and um, uh, unfortunately, um, I couldn't time it quite right. I'm putting it into instrument flight rules when I get back from Avalon. I'd like to have gone down with that instrumentation, but um, it's, uh, we'll be going VFR for this particular week. And what's the weather look like? I'm just listening to your call about Coomera. It makes you uh, shiver a little bit, but uh, no, the weather looks pretty good. Um, uh, when we get to Avalon, there's a um, broken at three and a half thousand feet that I'll be coming in underneath that. So um, I'll be uh, landing at Wagga to refuel, and I'll reassess when I get there yeah. and um, confirm my landing slot into um, Avalon. Craig, tell me about you and planes. How long have you been flying, and do you do this for a living, or is this your hobby? It's my hobby. I um, wanted to go into ADFA when I was a kid and um, be a pilot, and I was red, green, colourblind, so um, I missed out. And uh, so I, uh, I shared that story with my wife when we were coming back from the snow one year in Sydney, and we were just going past the Bankstown Airport. She said, we'll go and have a look. 
so to her, um, big mistake for her. Um, we've been flying for 22 years. I owned a Piper Aztec for seven years and then a, a twin Bonanza, a Warbird from America for 11 years and had Jado rockets on it. Um, and I did a lot of missions for Angel Flight, um, which I'm um, looking forward to doing with this new machine that I've just restored. So, um, yeah, we've had a lot of fun in it. We've been everywhere. A lot of the towns that you talk about that a lot of people haven't seen, we've been to. So no, I just a... flew out to Udnadatta and um, my grandfather built the nursing station at Inaminka in 1920. Right. So I, uh, I went out there and saw um, his work. It was lovely to run your hands over the timber walls. No, that was your grandfather that built it. Wow, I'll say. So, yeah, and then with the birds, all those places. Yeah, yeah I, I'd love to. Yeah, if you had your time over again, I think I'd fly because it's a great way to see the place, especially in Australia where there's lots of places where you can get there, but, you know, it's, it takes a lot of time. But in a plane, you know, two or three hours and in your most yeah. places and uh, you can stop on the way, as you say, you call into Wagga or call into Broken Hill or call into, call into Narandra or call into Bendigo or whatever, you know, you you can just land anywhere or Ardlethan or <laughs> whatever or Crescent right. if there's, a, if there's a, a bit of a strip somewhere you can put down and all of a sudden you're in a place you've never been before that's it and uh, yeah you can do what takes you three or four months in a caravan you can do in a week to ten days so um, now tell me about uh, tell me about the Avalon Air Show uh, this is a, a fairly high powered thing isn't it but they need people like you uh, like the Olympic Games needed and need volunteers and that's what you and your friends are doing? Yeah, um, that's exactly right. I, I mean, the, the catalyst was my son's studying. Uh, he's doing his commercial licence and because uh, he's obviously been around aeroplanes all his life with the holidays we've had as a family. We Rather than go overseas, we went in, inland. Um, so that's become his passion. But um, it looks like he's going to go solo next week during the air show. So um, he's had to stay back and... Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, there's a group of us that have all rallied around from the Flying Club. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's a great group of volunteers. Um, as you say, those kind of shows don't work without um, some help. So, um, And it is a high-profile um, show. You know, you've got a lot of the global um, air forces uh, are attending this year, so um, um, as well as a big contingent. 168 aircraft from General Aviation going, which is a record for the air show when it started. Wow. So, so it should be a good week. Yeah, mm. I'll say, and, and for people like you who are sound like you're, you're plain tragics, um, you'll, you'll have a great time. Yes, sometimes called aerosexuals. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> there you go. So, so, Craig, you're not flying at the moment, are you? You're about to take off, are you soon? Yeah, I'm, I'm just uh, driving out to the hangar. I've done my uh, briefing and um, I'm just getting out to the hangar now to um, put some fuel in it and then head off. Yeah, well, good on you, mate. And you keep in touch. Maybe ring us next week and tell us how it was. All right? I'll give you a call. Um, next Sunday is a big day at Avalon, so I'll try and come back to you during the show. That'd be great. That'd be great, Craig. Thanks. Good on good on you, mate. Thanks. Yeah, and thanks for taking the call. That's good a, on you, mate. Good. You're doing a great job. You know that. Yeah. Sometimes it's nice to hear it. <laughs> it's very nice to hear it, Craig. Good on you, mate. Say bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.